Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. We're here with one of our fortnightly topical podcasts. We've got a star-studded set of guests for you today. Joining us from the Institute of Economic Affairs is the head of political economy for that organisation, Christian Nemitz. Hello, Christian. Hello. Uh, From the Adam Smith Institute, just down the road from here, we have Morgan Schondelmeyer, the director of operations. Hello, Morgan. Hello. And as always, our deputy editor, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Hello. And me. Um, As always, we're going to divide this into a few different sections uh, of the podcast. First up, we're going to talk about the local elections. We are recording this on Thursday, the 5th of May, the day of the local elections. Uh, We don't have our crystal ball out to see what's actually going to happen. Um, But we're going to talk about the kind of prevailing political climate and um, the kind of issues for the electorate. Then we're going to move on to another issue that's been very big across the pond this week, which is the Roe versus Wade ruling or the leaked Supreme Court opinion about overturning it. And then finally, we're going to go back to a story from uh, last week, which is Elon Musk's mooted takeover of Twitter, what it could mean for the platform and what the kind of issues are around Twitter as the public square or as a utility. So, guys, to kick off, we're recording this on the day of the local elections, as I said, which cover a smorgasbord of different levels of government uh, but are being widely billed in the media as a kind of referendum on Partygate and the cost of living crisis. I don't especially want to talk about Partygate or Beergate because it's been done to death. Safe to say that the idea that the Labour leader having a curry and a beer after work with some colleagues is is not that big a deal, frankly. Um, on the cost of living, though, which I think is more interesting and has many more aspects to it, The Bank of England today says we're heading for a recession. Inflation could hit 10%. Interest rates are now up to a whopping 1%, um, which is quite an extraordinary thing if you grew up in the noughties when people are saying that interest rates are at 1%. Um, And as ever, there are lots of demands and clamour for the government to do something because the government hasn't been doing enough over the last few years. I mean, Christian, how much do you think the predicament we're in in terms of the cost of living is actually precisely down to the fact that the government does so much, intervenes in so many ways, charges, you know, raises so many different taxes and so on? Well, that's that's the big problem. I mean, that's why I'm not that bothered about a one-off surge in inflation, which can really be explained by one-off factors that are exceptional and that 
we really don't have to worry that much about. The problem is that we're starting from a very high base already. That The thing is, I wrote a book on this a decade ago, 2012, um, redefining the poverty debate about the fact that the basic cost of living in Britain is just phenomenally high. Uh, Britain is a very expensive place in terms of the basics of life, housing, um, and then and childcare and, and to a lesser extent energy and uh, various other things. And um, what's frustrating about this is that I looked at the book again the other week and I thought, well, this is 10 years old, but basically nothing has really changed. Um, some of the people I quote uh, are now no longer that relevant. I'd, I'd probably change a few names uh, and update the figures a bit. But otherwise, this is uh, we're still very much talking about the same issues. In housing in particular, it is of course uh, the perennial issue of, of planning reform. Um, since the book came out there have been two or three attempts at reform but uh, as always they always cave in as soon as there's a bit of NIMBY resistance and then the plans get shelved again. Um, on energy it's got worse in the meantime with uh, more green taxes and regulation and the whole net zero agenda. That wasn't um, a thing yet when I wrote that, but it was already uh, the case that even if you accept the need for decarbonization, um, we're doing it in an unnecessarily expensive ways by singling out particular technologies, renewable energy in particular, and trying to promote those and in doing that in a, in a costly way. Uh, and then childcare, of course, uh, is still the same issue with um, the uh, the staff to children ratios, uh, which are some of the, most, the strictest in the developed world, uh, and the whole tendency to turn childcare into a form of preschooling, uh, pre-education, uh, rather than what it used to be, uh, which is a supervised playground. Uh, and then there's there's the whole uh, nanny statism agenda, and this was all already. A big issue, well, as I said, 10 years ago when, when the book came out, and even then it wasn't new. So that is the problem. We're starting from a very high base level, and um, it's uh, the, the one of surge and inflation, that's not the issue. It's that we are already in a bad place. I think it's interesting how this might play out at the local election. So one of the big rumours is that London is going to lose, uh, sorry, the Conservatives are going to lose this talismanic London council in Wandsworth. It's the only council that's managed to actually cut taxes this year. And yet that doesn't seem to, uh, seems to be predicted not to be paying off at the ballot box. So it's, it's, it's strange that while, you know, we can talk about how these policies are negatively affecting what people can, you know, have in their wallets, that doesn't seem to be what people are voting for. I think the problem there, sorry, just to jump in, is that we raise, it's, again, goes to some of the things Christian was talking about. We're such a centralised country. We raise so little money at council level that even if you're a very well-run council like Wandsworth, the Tories have been in power there for more than 40 years. They've had very stable kind of fiscal policies. They can't really change ratepayers' standard of living that much because the amount they pay per year is only in the sort of, it's about £1,000, I think, in sort well, of top bands. Like. There's a preset, isn't there, which, you can, which councils can levy right. in order to pay for social care. Uh, so they do have quite a, a bit of discretion over what they charge. They um, do, but it's limited, so it's like... So we're having a capex on capex argument here <laughs> about this. I mean, my view, compared to, say, I don't know... Christian, perhaps you can talk about the, the comparison in Germany, uh, but in Sweden, for example, they raise something like 60% of taxes at a local level. Here it's about 10%, I think. It's like faintly, faintly ridiculous. 
but coming back, coming back to the kind of broader question of the cost of living, I mean, Morgan, what, when you look at the policies we have in place, if you were looking, if you're in number 10 now, Boris is saying, Morgan, can you tell me three policies that, you know, could help people out briskly? What do you reckon you would say to him? Um, I'd first have him relook at the tax burden, especially on uh, the young. So a graduate is paying something like 50% in tax once you factor in, um, you know, national insurance increases, their student loans, all of that. So the tax burden on young people is massive. It's it's the largest we've seen in decades. I mean, that's not even just young people. The tax burden on everyone is incredibly high. Um, but beyond that, I think some of the things that Christian was pointing to, like cost of childcare and housing are obvious fixes. Well, we would like them to be obvious fixes. Clearly, solving this, the problem isn't that obvious. It's something we should obviously target, but uh, fixing the problem is not that easy. But it's really just focusing on those those things that are holding people back. So um, another thing you could look at is income tax thresholds have not risen with inflation. So you have this kind of um, lag that you get, fiscal drag, where everyone is worse off just because the income tax... Um, thresholds have not um, moved along with, with the rise in um, the, you know, minimal rise in wages that we've seen. Um, to Christian's point, we've had 10 years of, of cost of living crisis kind of already brewing when we've had no real wage growth in the last decade or so. So we are facing a, a problem where cost of living is high and wages are low. I mean, if, if the UK were a US state, it would be the second poorest state. Um, and when you look at it that way in terms of GDP per capita, like that, that's a very stark um, comparison. Yeah, I always think that Europeans are quite surprised when they look at those charts and see how far ahead America is um, from the rest of us. I mean, Christian, you talked about not being too concerned about sort of transitory factors. I mean, to what extent is... What do you, how do you see the kind of balance between political decision-making and global factors? Because often the debate here seems to be about snarl-ups at ports in China and things like that. Um, so, I mean, where do you see the balance between those external factors that our government can't really control, the ones that they can control, and also monetary policy, which has kind of been palmed for the last 25 years, has been the preserve of the independent Bank of England. In fact, it's the 25th anniversary today of the Bank of England being granted its independence by Gordon Brown. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think governments should just be honest about factors that they cannot control. And uh, we should move away from this. Uh, there, there is always political demand and political pressure on politicians to do something. And that's part of the problem. I, I would quite uh, like to hear politicians sometimes say, you know what, this isn't uh, within the range of political control. And therefore, I'm going to do precisely nothing because this isn't my job. Uh, but of course, that would be that politician would be very unpopular, and um, because it is unfortunately demand driven. Um, I mean, Alice, you mentioned before that there isn't much of a uh, a political reward for um, keeping taxes low. Mm. That doesn't surprise me that much. They have this uh, this question uh, every year in the British Social Attitude Survey, where they ask uh, where where you can choose between three options: uh, taxes. Uh, and public spending should go up, taxes and public spending should stay where they are now, or both should come down. And as always, just under half of the population say 
should stay where they are now. The other, uh, just under half say uh, should go up. Almost nobody actually wants taxes and public spending uh, to go down. So this is the sort of thing where we have to uh, just admit that our ideas on this are just very unpopular. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that. I mean, you say there's this. You know, politicians feel that they have to do something, but there's also an incredible amount of inertia. I mean, on childcare, for example. Um, I wrote an article about this, you know, making all the arguments that, that we all make here, uh, that we need to get rid of the ratios, we need to get rid of the early years foundation, you know, we don't need childminders filling out forms about the development of two-year-olds. And I got attacked on Twitter saying that this is going to be terrible for children's development, it's not safe. Not recognising the point that at the moment childcare is so expensive that very few families can afford it at all. Um, and I think this is what Friedman called the kind of tyranny of the status quo. So even though we have a big uh, conservative majority, it's very difficult to actually get anything done. Well, it's, a, it's an odd version of the tyranny of the status quo because it hasn't been the status quo for that long. Exactly. I mean, childcare used to be um, relatively informal until uh, the 2000s or so. Uh, in, in the 90s, a time traveller or somebody who has uh, fallen into a coma in the 90s and wakes up today wouldn't recognise the sector as it is today and wouldn't see why uh, the kinds of reforms that you're talking about are now a sacred cow and why, why this would now be controversial. This would just go mean going back uh, to, uh, to the way things were just over two decades earlier. And absolutely, it's an argument from such a position of privilege. My daughter is in a very lovely nursery where they do all of this development stuff and, and it's great, but it costs 70% of my salary. Many people cannot afford that kind of quality. If we had much more choice, then people, you'd have a higher standard overall. Yeah, I don't want to reveal too much about my personal finances on this, but we only send our daughter to the nursery for three days a week because it's just so expensive. And that's even with the massive government subsidy. So we have this bizarre situation where the government subsidises to counteract the cost of policies which it itself implements. Yeah, it's and it's like, really strange. This sort of thing is heartbreaking for me to hear because as someone who wants to have kids, I'm looking at this and thinking you know, can I afford this? Is this something I can factor into my life at this point, never mind buying a house? So when people always ask me, oh, do you want to move back to the States? If it comes to starting a family, that's a very real possibility because I could afford childcare. I could send my kids to good school. I could buy a house now if I wanted to in the States. Like, I just don't have those same um, abilities here. And that's not even just because I live in London. You know, I think that would be the case, you know, in any major city, you know, if I moved to somewhere rural, maybe I could afford childcare, but uh, I can't drive, so I wouldn't be able to get anywhere. You must be the only American I've ever met who can't drive. Well, I can drive in America, I can't drive here. Oh, right, so. okay, fair enough. I mean, it particularly affect, I mean, obviously it particularly affects women as well, because for a lot of mothers, it's just not really worth it to mm. kind of go out there and, and, and that has, people talk endlessly about the gender pay gap, but really that is the probably the biggest factor. Yeah, my it. personal situation, and I don't think it's unusual, is that basically my husband subsidised me to work. I hope CapEx readers appreciate it, but it's a ridiculous situation, really. Yeah, for the higher-ups at the CPS, we'll give out the payroll. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But that actually brings us on fairly neatly to our, our next topic which is, as I said in the intro, um, this ruling, or rather it's not a ruling, the leaked opinion in the US about Roe versus Wade. Just as a brief background, that was a ruling in 1973 that basically said that um, women in America were entitled by the Constitution to have an abortion. Ever since then, it has been... I don't, I'll, I'll let Morgan take this on because she's just written a very good piece for us on CapEx on this, but it's been... A, a, ever since that ruling, it's been arguably the kind of culture war touchstone issue, right, in the States... It absolutely has. It's something that's never gone away. And Roe v. Wade was was not this sort of magic wand that was going to fix the, the, the problem forever. It was, in my view, always a very tenuous ruling. Um, the justices in 1973 decided that the 14th Amendment, which is the one that affords right to privacy and due process and um, prevents undue government intervention, essentially, into your life, uh, thought that right to privacy applied to a woman's choice to get an abortion and the government couldn't uh, intervene. At the same time, they said the government has every right to intervene when it comes to, you know, uh, medical standards, protecting the life of, of unborn children and, and maternal health. So there was always that caveat. But at the same time, the Constitution also very clearly says in the Tenth Amendment that anything not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution as a federal right belongs to the states. And there's nothing in the Constitution that mentions abortion. So in my view, it was always, always going to be overturned as soon as you got enough of a, a, a conservative majority, because the Tenth Amendment is very clear. I always thought that the Fourteenth Amendment was a bit more of a stretch. Um, right. So it was always you'd be overturned if we wanted to have it. And I think we absolutely should have protections for abortion at the federal level. It needs to be done in primary legislation. Right, it's interesting, yeah, because you, as you say in that article, you're not, you're by no means an opponent of of women's choice, but the argument, you know, from a purely legal point of view, it's quite a dry and technical one. It, but it always strikes me when you look at these debates in American politics around the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court's kind of a metonym or a mirror of kind of prevailing cultural orthodoxy and, and political debate. So we might see it as this kind of chamber apart from politics, but it, but it's not really, is it? It's not, and that's why the kind of breakdown of the court, whether it's conservative, liberal, centrist, is very important because the way that you interpret the Constitution, the type of, um, you know, justice that you are comes, is, is very important and comes down to interpreting it one way, which provides federal protections for abortion, and in another way, which immediately makes abortion illegal in 26 states. So this, these are not small issues on the margins. This is, you know, a group of people 
who over time change their views or, you know, as new justices come in, you're fundamentally changing the law of the land based on subjective interpretation. Um, And that's a very dangerous way, I think. I mean, I think the Supreme Court is a vital institution for the U.S., but I think if you're relying on something so important, like a female right, a female's right to choose, like gay marriage, like, you know, gun rights. A lot of people think that guns rights are really important. You know, the Supreme Court could make changes there based on mm. a new interpretation of the Constitution. I don't think that's going to happen. But if we really want to protect these things, they need to be brought into primary legislation as a, a supplement to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and changing the actual Constitution takes, what, I think three quarters yeah, of the it, state. It's so it's, an, it's a bit hardly ever going to happen again. Yeah. I, on a, I just want to touch on something which is related to this, which is that the way that a lot of kind of the British commentators, and I think there's a little bit of cynical kind of clickbait here from news organisations, published all these articles being like, oh, Roe versus Wade might be about to be overturned. Watch out, it might happen here in, in Britain. I mean, Kristen, do you think the way that Brits have started to sort of obsess and panic over American issues... It's quite an odd phenomenon. I mean, where do you think it arises from? Is it because of our broader cultural connection, our shared language, the fact that we, you know, we have Hollywood and we feel like we know America? Yeah, it's not in itself surprising that people here take an interest in what happens in the States uh, because of the common language, of course, and uh, the United States just being a very large country. And, and this is just generally what happens um, when uh, in, in a situation like that. It would also be the case that uh, Austrians and Swiss people would know a lot about what happens in Germany, which would not be the case the other way around. Um, that's just a reflection of the relative size of the countries. But nonetheless, that shouldn't mean that you have to copy and paste every culture war. Um, you can still distinguish between issues that are specific to a country and uh, issues that are clearly not. And um, in this case, it makes no sense whatsoever to transfer this into the British culture war, because one of the differences between the countries is clearly that here there is no such thing as a religious right. I mean, I'm sure you can uh, find one or two people, uh, but as a political constituency, they're not a thing here. It's basically Jacob Rees-Mogg, and that's about it. <laughs> well, it's a few edge lords on Twitter. But, you, yeah. but <laughs> the thing about Jacob Rees-Mogg, though, he says, uh, you know, as a uh, Catholic or a Christian, um, he would never uh, advocate for abortion, but he also sees absolutely no recourse for changing the law. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the difference in America, is you, you, like, you have zero separation of church and state in this way because people who are devoutly religious are actively trying to change law. Mm. Okay. Sorry. So even to the extent that we have an echo of a religious right, they're relatively moderate or would be by American standards. Toothless. Um, <laughs> or that. Yeah. But but it is a continuation of a broader trend. Uh, it was it was the same thing with the whole Black Lives Matter movement that even though nothing had happened here, there was no incident of police brutality or or anything here. Uh, this was purely an American story, the George Floyd killing. And it just got copied and pasted, and then suddenly it was a big movement here as well, and uh, it just felt a bit, uh, I thought, why do we have to do this? this? This isn't an issue here. This is their culture war. Let them let, let leave that culture war to them. I think if I want to slightly stick up for the perhaps a bit hysterical reaction to this uh, story we've seen in Britain, because I feel like... I think women, I think there's a certain naivety around how different the cultural debate is around abortion in America to what it is here. I think what we've experienced in Britain is a sort of, or what it feels like anyway, is a kind of ratchet towards greater 
greater freedoms around reproductivity. So we recently had Parliament uh, agreed to make permanent this rule where you could get telemedicine abortions. Um, it feels like we've just had a kind of steady progress in one direction. Whereas in America, I feel like it's always been fraught and we've had uh, heartbeat bills there. Um, so I think this is just... So the heartbeat bill is, is to do with the term length, presumably. Sorry, yes, this is where... Uh, this is. Uh, outlawed abortions as soon as you can hear a fetus's heartbeat which is around six weeks at right. a point in which yeah. many women don't even know they're pregnant mm -hmm. so I, I, I feel like women here perhaps have taken our rights for well, not for granted but um, have assumed that a, a kind of end, end of history attitude to our reproductive rights which just doesn't seem to be the same in America. There's also I should say that quite a lot of unpleasantness for women who do go to clinics there can be in this country. Yes I would also say that it's not completely true that this argument is entirely settled you do get these horrible protests outside abortion clinics it is a much more disputed issue in Northern Ireland for example uh, where the Westminster Parliament basically imposed um, free abortion rights upon it um, because Stormont didn't exist at the time. Um, so I wouldn't say the question is completely settled, but it does feel like, as, as far as Parliament is concerned, it has no intention of rolling them back, which isn't quite the same as it being a completely won battle, I think. Um, I think to the point of, of protesting outside of, of clinics, uh, yes, that's something that also happens in the States, um, and you, you do get these you know, almost violent outbursts of women, even just trying to access other um, you know, feminine health care purposes you know whether talking cancer screenings or whatever if you're in a woman's clinic you are presumed to be having an abortion um, which obviously is, is not the right case but in this country correct me if I'm wrong you've also passed a bill where you can't protest within however many meters of, of yeah I think it's about 200 meters yeah um, and I've, I've gone past a few of these protests and they are pretty toothless you get like two or three people whereas in the states you'll get 20 30 40 50 people outside mm. of of these major um, abortion clinics and that's you know, intimidation and it's wrong in, in all of its forms. But I just feel like there's there's so much to be grateful for in this country with access to to these services that Americans can only dream of having. Um, and this isn't, I'm not, again, not out here. I don't think anyone takes the, the decision to get an abortion lightly. We, we shouldn't be talking about this as if it's, you know, an easy thing that people are doing willy-nilly. It's not. No one who ever goes through that does it willingly or, you know, without a thought. This is a very serious thing on both sides, but it's it's an integral, I think, part of a society that you would offer women the choice. And Christian, one of the things you're big on on Twitter is high and low status opinions. Do you think being seen to be informed and passionate about American issues is quite a kind of high status thing on social media? It's not necessarily that it's part of the American debate, but it would just quickly emerge. Uh, one side is the high status side and uh, the fashionable opinion. Sometimes that, that the fashionable opinion can sometimes be correct, um, if only by accident. <laughs> this is maybe one of those cases uh, where the high status uh, opinion is also the correct one. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's uh, generally what happens. And, um, and that is also, uh, I think, that's maybe the whole reason why we copy these debates here. Uh, because even though we don't have a, a serious uh, religious right here, uh, if we had one, 
they would clearly be very, very low status. And uh, by signaling how much you hate these people, even if they don't exist here, that is one way of signaling, look, I'm on the fashionable side and uh, I have high status opinions. That's why we so often get um, debates against um, fantasy villains, or in that case, wholly imported villains. I mean, here we can just act as if these people don't exist because for our intents and purposes, they don't. Yeah, it's like when you see protesters going, stop, don't shoot. At Metropolitan Police Officers or Sadiq Khan yesterday he tweeted saying something like London stands with London American women so which is actually like kind of bollocks because if you look at the social attitudes of Londoners they're actually more socially conservative mm. than the rest of the country because you have a lot of much more religious and sort of traditionally minded communities who who think that abortion is basically wrong mm. um, so it's quite interesting you have this classic kind of you know, he's just status seeking there with that tweet. They're saying, like, look what a great kind of moral guy. Trying to kind of, I think, I think he's trying to kind of um, burnish his credentials as kind of transatlantic political star as well. It's really bizarre. Um, yeah, but then again, uh, that that probably is what a lot of his voters want. So we can't really say, oh no, you should only talk about crime and traffic because that's what your voters want. I'm not sure they do. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think. Um, he also, to be fair, I mean, Boris used the London mayoralty as a platform for himself as a kind of big political superstar as much as anyone, so perhaps we can't uh, blame Sadiq. But, well, the, the London mayor uh, generally doesn't have that much power anyway, yeah. so uh, you might as well use it as a platform for self-promotion. Yeah, it's I a glorified he, traffic commissioner. Well, I think if he really cared about women's rights, just stop them being murdered and <laughs> stabbed, frankly. So. There we go. I mean, we were talking about Twitter there, which brings us... Again, neatly, onto our final section, which is about what you could call kind of the economics of Twitter. Elon Musk has made a $43 billion bid, I think. I don't know what that is in terms of his... I think he's worth about $200 billion or something ridiculous. It seems to change every week, depending on how Tesla's stock is doing. I mean, Christian, we always, whenever we talk about social media, it's always kind of in the context of regulation. You often hear this idea that Twitter and Facebook are utilities. Now... As an economist, what do you make of this idea that, that social media platforms amount to utilities? Yeah, social media platform is a very odd kind of good. Um, we're, we're, maybe, we're still not exactly sure how to classify them. But they're not utilities. Uh, they're, they're not natural monopolies in the conventional sense. You normally get a natural monopoly when the fixed costs of setting up, of running a service is so colossal that you cannot realistically have more than one company in the market. So um, the energy grid is the classic example. Uh, it wouldn't be realistic to set up a competing parallel energy grid or a competing um, sewage system. These are things where you can only have one and uh, that makes them natural monopolies. That clearly isn't the case in the case of Twitter. The, the cost of setting up a Twitter-like platform I can't put a number on it, but there are at least half a dozen platforms that are quite Twitter-like. Uh, I haven't used any of those, but I've read that they are specifically trying to mirror Twitter in order to make the transition easy. Uh, so that cannot be the issue. And those are, I think, fairly small companies. And uh, it's, it's not that they are very capital intensive. Now, there is a more serious argument about um, network effects, network externalities. Uh, there are goods which are only useful when lots of people also use them, like a telephone. If, 
if you're the only person who has a telephone, then uh, well, there's no one you can call. So uh, it's not particularly useful. And the more people have them, the more useful they become. Uh, currency is a, is a network good. Uh, language, you could say, is a network good. Um, and yes, I guess up to a point, a social media platform is too. That'd be no, not much point in having a, a social media platform that only has 12 users. But then I, I don't see how um, that means that it has to be a natural monopoly like good because these network effects are not, uh, they fizzle out after some point. They don't, they don't keep growing indefinitely. Twitter has something like, I think more than 300 million users now. You can't realistically interact with 300 million people. There has to be, there's an upper limit, uh, which, I mean, even even for me, I'm a fairly minor player on Twitter. Um, I would have, a, uh, I have maybe the one-tenth of the following that an equivalent left-wing commentator would have. <laughs> but but even, even for me, uh, I only see a fraction of the tweets of the people I follow. Uh, I miss notifications. Um, realistically, there isn't, uh, I wouldn't benefit if the platform were bigger. Uh, and I don't think I would, uh, it would be harmful in some way if it was only half as big or only a quarter as big. Um, so network effects, yes, but only up to a point. Uh, I think what really happens, uh, the reason why Twitter has this um, market dominant position for now, is something more mundane. It goes back again to the opinions as status symbols uh, issue. I think you have a lot of people who use Twitter really as a way of finding out what the fashionable opinion is on various subjects. So most blue tick users, journalists, academics use it in that way. They may not always adopt the, the fashionable opinion uh, themselves, but they just like being around people with fashionable opinions. Uh, and that's the reason why these Twitter competitors haven't taken off. Because whenever somebody has set up something that looks a bit like Twitter, who are the first people to go there? Well, it would be the Trump, Trump people, right? Trump yeah. figures, exactly, yes. Yeah. So that, that means uh, those platforms are clearly not the places where uh, blue ticks, journalists and academics would want to be. The, these are the places that they want to avoid at all costs. So it's it's not the network externalities that make Twitter big. It's more a situation I would compare it to, say, a small town or village that has five or six competing pubs. But there's one pub where all the fashionable people go. So therefore, you have lots of people who want to be there because they just enjoy being around fashionable people. And um, But that doesn't mean that that pub has a monopoly or that that is, that, let alone a natural one. Uh, you could have several fashionable people switching to a different platform and then Twitter would immediately lose lots of followers. There were people now saying, oh, Elon Musk is buying that. I'm not tweeting anymore. If they had uh, coordinated this a little and said, we're now all switching to that platform. Yeah, it's quite a, a lot of people would a, What's the word I'm looking for? There's a degree of peril here for Elon Musk, I think, in terms of what he's taking on. Well, I, I don't think he realized what he's taking on for a few reasons, one of them being the online safety bill, which I would love that to talk about. That was actually <laughs> genuinely going to be my next question, was that and I have written in front of you, Elon Musk is walking into a hellstorm. <laughs> Fines, regulation, interference. Yeah. I mean, in the UK alone. I mean, 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, so the online safety bill, which is you know currently going through Parliament, basically puts the onus on the platform owners and, and execs to um, create or, or limit harmful content. Um, and the Legal bit, but harmful. Yeah, yeah the, the, the bill is incredibly broad, so it's not restrictive to things that are already illegal, like um, you know inciting violence or images of terrorism or you know things like that, uh, child exploitation. It includes legal but harmful, which they've taken to mean um, causing distress or misinformation, trolling, bullying. All of these things currently fall within the scope. Um, and the bill makes it so that providers and CEOs and boards are liable for content on their platform, which means they won't run the risk of allowing stuff that could be considered harmful because th- that's they don't want to take that liability. So it, even though Twitter is not a British company, if Twitter is able to be accessed by British users, they're going to be under the scope of the online safety bill. So you would basically just get mass amounts of censorship, which is exactly what Elon Musk is not aiming for. Um, he's kind of saying he's going to make it this free speech paragon. Not in the UK, he's not. Not, not with this current legislation because he won't run the risk of getting... Yeah. So I think you you could be fined ten percent of the um, revenue of the exactly. What's so company? stupid about it is that it's revenue as well. It's not even profit. Yeah, Twitter doesn't even make money, as far as I know. It's one of the things I find so strange about this deal is that he's willing to invest seemingly an enormous amount of his net worth, however vastly rich he is. I mean, it's still you know a big percentage of his wealth in a business that hasn't ever been shown to make to turn a profit. But also I think what's going to happen is if the online safety bill goes ahead and Elon Musk being kind of the troll that he is, he might just decide, actually, not worth it, shutting down Twitter in the UK. He could decide wholesale that it's more trouble than it's worth and he would just shut down Twitter in the UK um, and then we would have to find a new fashionable pub to all go to. Maybe we should all get together and set up a fashionable. I think Christian could be pub. a great voice for a new social media. Alice, how, how devastating would it be? By definition, very unfashionable. Yeah. How devastating do you think it would be a world without Twitter? I mean, coming back to this idea that it's the, the public square or a utility. I mean, from your own experience, you weren't that active on Twitter, particularly from before working with CapEx. I don't suppose it ruined your life particularly. No. Um, I mean, I feel like as a journalist you kind of can't avoid it, right? The, the job is uh, to, to be an opinion haver and to promote CapEx content, and that is the place Absolutely. to do it. Yeah. So uh, my only sort of feeling about Twitter is that it's a useful professional tool. This, I, this is going to sound so embarrassing, but one of my New Year's resolutions was to get more followers on Twitter as a professional tool um, to like you know increase my own platform for my writing for CapEx or, or whatever, or the ASI's work. And just how sad is that? That like part of my job, I thought actually it'd be really good if I'm, if I'm more prolific good, on social yeah. media for work. I see it as that sad. I just think that's part of the job, right? We, you know, with Capex is obviously we're an online magazine. That's that's our world, and um, I, I feel like if, as long as you keep that kind of professional attitude to Twitter and don't let it bleed too much into your. I was literally going to say it bleeds into <laughs> my my time too much, and I just find it's the gamification of it. It's the little drips of dopamine of. I think you've got to yeah. have rules, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, try not to make it too personal. Try not to get into fights. Yeah, Definitely. Christian, do you have any rules mm-hmm. about your engagement beyond uh, not <laughs> engaging too much with uh, communists? Or? Well, only a, a cut-off point. Uh, no tweeting after four pints. 
Okay, that's, that's, that's good. It's a good rule. All right. Well, I think that's uh, a lovely note on which to end it. No tweeting after four pints, everybody. Um, thank you all very much uh, for joining us. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Thank you all at home for listening, as ever. And please do tune in for our next sit-down interview podcast next week, which I'm really looking forward to. It's with the Russian opposition political activist Vladimir Ashurkov, who uh, works for Alexei Navalny. So that should be very interesting. Thanks very much. Thank you.